Would you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2? It's on page 1011 in your Blue Pew Bibles. And just to remind you that St. Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed and powerful to correct and also equip us for every good work. So of the many things God may do, God can do whatever He wants. I hope that He equips you and equips our church for good works through the Word that He breathed, through the pen of Jesus' brother James. Pray with me. Lord, as we turn to James chapter 2, we pray now that you would indeed equip us for every good work and that you would banish from this church partiality one heart at a time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying the letter of James currently. Uh, James was Jesus' brother. And people really like the letter James, I found, as I've talked with many of you. And I think one of the reasons people like James is because it's very practical. James is about faith that works. He's about belief that acts. Don't just think about Christianity. Do Christianity, James says. It's very practical. However, we would be mistaken if we took from this, this fact that James is very practical, that he's not also very deep. And as I've studied this letter with you the last few weeks, I've come to realize that James' genius is this. He recognizes that what we do outwardly reveals who we are inwardly. What's happening on the surface of life says a lot about the depths of life. This is why James knows that if you're not doing any good works, it may be because you don't deep down have a deep experience of love. He knows that if you can't bridle your tongue, it's a sign that maybe you can't control your heart. And so today in chapter 2, he brings up another outward behavior, an outward action. You'll see this. In this case, it has to do with how do you treat people? How do you evaluate others when you see them? What are the thoughts that go through your head? How do you rank them? And based on your judgment, how do you then treat them? So James brings up the issue of how we evaluate others today because you know, he knows it reveals something about who we deeply are. He states his thesis. Here's just an outline of the passage if you find this helpful. He states his thesis, his main point in verse 1. He then supports it by giving us a vivid image of it. We'll get into this in verses 2 through 4. Then in verses 5 through 13, he offers several reasons why we should take his point seriously. And he lands in verse 13 with what feels like a very broad but very blunt statement. I want you to see it. I want to start here. Verse 13, he says, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So embedded there is the whole idea he's unpacking. How we judge people. If we judge without mercy, then we will receive judgment without mercy. We'll understand this better in a moment. But I think, I think we could paraphrase the main point of this passage, and it may be helpful to do so. We could paraphrase it like this. Here's what James wants to teach us today. How we inwardly evaluate then outwardly value others is an evaluation of ourselves. 
How we evaluate others evaluates us. How we judge others is a judgment back upon us. That's the deep logic of what James is getting at. So for example, the, the man who can show no mercy in judging others may be a man who has underestimated his own need to be shown mercy. Or the woman who can't help but solely evaluate other people based on their outward experiences and worldly standards. She may be a woman who is still, as Jesus says, seeks the praise of man rather than the praise or glory that comes from God. Or the the person who simply favors the important, the impressive, and the rich and just can't really pay any mind to an average or unimpressive or poor person. This may be someone, James thinks, who hasn't fully in their heart grasped the nature of the kingdom of God. How we evaluate others evaluates us. Now James, he opens with this theme about how we evaluate others by by bringing up a specific species of it, favoritism or partiality. So we read in verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now what does partiality mean? I think this afternoon if you asked one of our kids who came up here for baptism at lunch, what's partiality mean? They'd probably say, I don't know, that's kind of a big word. What does it mean? Well, the word that's translated partiality here in the original, it literally means to receive the face. It catches the idea of judging someone completely based on outward appearances and worldly standards and then ranking them according to these things. And James wants us to know that three things happen when we do this. Number one, we misjudge people. Number two, we unjustly rank people. And number three, we always lean towards judging them without mercy. Now, in its its tamer expressions, partiality is called something like favoritism. In its darker mutations, it turns into prejudice and discrimination. Now, I committed this sin almost every single day in high school. I didn't have a mature relationship with the Lord in high school. Instead, I was ensconced in the systems of the world, and my little high school world taught me to value people based on whether or not they were popular. And this meant good at sports, good at fitting in, good looking, and I was partial. I favored these people. I wanted to spend time with them, be known by them, be liked by them, fit in with them. And the people that weren't popular, I largely ignored. I certainly didn't favor them. And you know, at my five-year high school reunion, even before I understood the theological error I was committing, I saw the relational cost. At my five-year high school reunion, the the Lord had gotten a hold of me in the five years after high school and was really doing radical change in my corrupted heart. And I go into my five-year high school reunion, and how I saw the people was one of the most striking things. The people that I had thought were so popular and important, many of them had faded away. Many weren't even at the reunion. 
And I found myself talking to all these individuals that I'd barely ever talked to in high school. And I kept thinking one after the other, this person's so interesting. This person is really deep. This person's fascinating. This person's wonderful. And what I realized, man, I really blew it in high school. I totally misjudged. I wonder if you do that ever. Based on your gut reaction, based on how the world tells you to value people, you completely misjudge. And it's relationally costly. We can all relate to this. Now, James' concern with partiality goes deeper than merely its relational cost. You don't have to be a Christian to notice that. Everybody sees this. James, however, wants us to see the sin of partiality in relation to the faith called Christianity. I mean, it's one thing to do graffiti on a bathroom wall. It's another thing to do graffiti on the Mona Lisa. And so James is saying this sin of partiality, it's bad wherever it happens. But when it happens in the church, it is egregious. And that's why I think he goes on about it for 13 verses. And this is why, look, in verse 1, he doesn't just say don't show partiality. Notice how he links it with holding the Christian faith. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's basically saying, don't you dare be prejudiced while you're being a Christian. Now, here's how he unfolds this. His aim is really to convict us today and convince us of the horrors of this sin. And here's how he does it in two ways. First, he paints a picture. He asks us to look at something. He plays a movie reel. This is verses 2 through 4. We're going to look at partiality. Then in verses 5 through 13, he asks us to think about it. He pivots. In verse 5, you see the word listen. Listen. He starts to teach. And we'll see there he gives several reasons, theological and social, of why partiality is such a problem. So first he says, look at it. This is verses 2 through 4. He paints a painful picture here. One, because it's happening inside a church. You'll see the word assembly. Let me just read this for you, verses 2 through 4. Here's the scene. This is the movie that's playing. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, it's a vivid scene. He goes into some serious detail. Gold rings, shiny clothing, sitting at someone's feet. It's a scene we can relate to. I think if it happened today, you might imagine someone, particularly in the area like Washington, someone would arrive at church, this is a visitor, and we would know immediately that they were important. I think that's the category we might use in Washington. There's somebody important. We see the car they arrive in, the clothes they wear, the way they walk, maybe they even have a security detail. And we subtly bend towards them. We want to make sure they get a good seat. We want to make sure they're welcomed by our favorite usher. We want to make sure we're wondering, are they going to enjoy the service? Do they like it? We want to make sure they're welcomed by, you know, the normal, really neat people at the church. And simultaneously, someone arrives, and they're in the categories of Washington. They're just kind of a nobody. They're average. Or in this case, they don't have nice clothes on. They don't have a nice car they arrive in. There's nothing special about them. 
And it's not that we say something to them. It's not that we even consciously think something. It's that in our subconscious, we rank them average. Or they're just not as important as these other people. And in subtle or overt ways, we bend away from them, not towards them. Maybe if they're dressed in shabby clothes, we might even think, well, gosh, I hope they don't get seated next to me. Or I hope this impressive person doesn't get caught talking with them after the service because then they would think our church is like that. And we subtly, James says, we have made distinctions among ourselves and, verse 4, become judges with evil thoughts. Now, he spends a good bit of time giving us reasons why this is not just wrong but a sin. But before he does that, I just want to ask, why do you think he starts with a picture? You know, he could have just started with verse 5. You go home and read this. He doesn't need verses 2 through 4. Why does he start with a picture? You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Let me give you two reasons, I think, that James begins by playing kind of a movie reel. It has something to do with how he wants to catch us immediately. I think the one reason he starts with a picture may be because partiality can often be a very subtle thing. We don't notice it. It's what some people might call a sin of omission. I mean, it's not that you did anything wrong on Sunday. You just didn't go out of your way to talk to a certain person. I mean, you were busy loving on all the other people, right? It's very subtle. We don't notice it. But you see, it's not subtle from the viewpoint of God. Just like it's not subtle from the viewpoint of a parent. Imagine you're a mother and you're given a window onto your young daughter at recess this week. And she goes out to recess and all the popular kids decide to ignore her because she's not wearing the right outfit or because she's quiet or she's a little bit different. They don't say anything to her. They just play their own game and kind of turn their shoulder away from her and she's by herself. That's not subtle to you if you're that mother. It's heartbreaking. And you're thinking to yourself, if these little brats, if they only gave her a chance, if they gave her a chance, they would realize she's amazing. She's so interesting. She's so fun. Friends, from the vantage point of God, when he sees partiality, he's always looking through a parent's eyes. It's never just a nobody that we ignore. So that's the first reason James uses a picture. Because he wants us to see this isn't so subtle. You look at this and you're like, this is egregious. But if you were sitting in the congregation, you, might, you may not have even noticed it. The second reason I think he starts with a picture is because I do think he wants us to have a visceral, guttural reaction. He wants us to look at this and not just think, well, it's a theological error. He wants us to look at it and go, this is shameful. This is ugly. This is a disfigurement of the beauty of the people of God. He wants the image to get us or hit us in the gut. And I think it's proper for us to look at partiality in the church and find it shameful. And it can be really hard to look at. Earlier this year, someone sent me a picture of a church gathering it had been taken decades before. I don't know where the church was. And there were 
about 30 men lined up at the front of the church, standing there facing the congregation. And, and the pastor was leaning out of the pulpit, something like this, shaking one of their hands, looking, you know, very proper, honorable morning. And all the men were wearing robes. But they weren't Anglican clerical robes. They were white robes with white sheets on their head. They were clansmen. And in huge letters across the front of the church, over their heads, were the words, Jesus saves. James would look at this and he would cry, show no partiality while you're holding to the faith of Jesus Christ. Or you could think of a scene, another really hard scene. This actually involves Peter. It happened in the church in Antioch. Antioch was just north, a few hundred miles north of Jerusalem. This is recounted in Galatians 2. Peter goes up to the church in Antioch and Friends of his from Jerusalem who are Jewish come up, and under their pressure, Peter, a Jew, stops eating with Gentiles. Why? Because his friends from Jerusalem are telling him that Gentiles are ethnically unclean, and Peter refuses to break bread with them. Or you, you might think of the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries when churches were building box pews. You know what those are? Those are pews with high walls around, these, around them, and you could lock them. So wealthy families would buy a pew and they would lock it so somebody poor wouldn't be able to get in there and sit. Or fresh on my mind is what happened in Rwanda in the last 30 years. I was in Rwanda recently and I learned a lot about the genocide there. And I found out that in 1991 a survey was done in Rwanda that found that 90% of the people in Rwanda were Christians. 90% a Christian nation. Three years later in 1994, many of these people turned on each other in bloody genocide and over a million people were killed, many of whom were both confessing Christians part of the same church. James would just look at these things and say, do not take partiality lightly. It is a sin, and it will mutate into prejudice and discrimination. And I think this is why he concludes this section bringing up murder. He brings up the command of murder. I think he knows his brother Jesus' teaching. If you're angry at somebody, it is moving towards the same emotion that leads to murder. In other words, James wants us to have some sort of guttural reaction at this point. When he says, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you that there's partiality in the congregations of people to whom God showed no partiality. God died for them. Well, they were sinners and they were a wreck and they were unworthy. And they're then turning around and ranking people based on whether or not they think that they're worthy. So that's just the first thing. He wants us to look at this. But in verse 5, he pivots. You can see the word there, listen. So what he's doing now is he's got us open. He goes, okay, now listen, I'm going to give you, and he gives us four reasons why partiality is such a problem. It's kind of an anatomy of the sin of partiality. I'm just going to walk through these with us. Reason number one, it's in verse five. Partiality opposes the favor of God. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? People tend to ignore or even oppose the weak and the lowly and the poor. But, James says, God actually chooses them. 
In other words, human favoritism is the opposite of divine favor. Now, what does he mean by this? I, I don't think James means here that God only saves poor people. If that was the case, then the path to salvation would just be going bankrupt. It doesn't mean he only saves poor people. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Levi, the tax collector, was well off. Joseph of Arimathea was well off. It's not that God doesn't interact with everybody. James, I think what he's doing here is simply stating a historical fact. When you read the Bible and you look at history, the gospel, God, seems to move very powerfully among the lowly. So, starting with Exodus, God chooses the slave peoples, not the powerful Egyptians. He chooses Israel, the lowly nation, the slaves, to be his people. He raises up David, the youngest brother, the nobody, the one everyone forgot about to be his great king. He chooses Mary and Joseph to be the family within which Jesus will grow up. Mary and Joseph didn't have the money to afford a proper offering when they took Jesus to the temple. They had to have a a little pigeon. They weren't wealthy. Then you could think of the makeup of the early church. What does Paul say in Corinthians? Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So God chooses or works through the weak, the lowly, and the poor. I just want to pause for a second and just point out two things this teaches us that are good to notice. Number one, it teaches us something about God's heart. It teaches us that he's compassionate. God is moved towards human need. Isaiah 41, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. God expects his people to be likewise moved. Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. James has just summarized true religion at the end of chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. This teaching that God moves towards the poor, and this may be one of the most important things you hear today, it's just this one nugget, it tells us that God is compassionate. If you have need in your life, that is reason enough for God to be moved to move towards you. He hears you and he sees you. It also teaches us something else, and this is going even a little deeper. God's proclivity to move towards the lowly teaches us something about the logic of salvation or the logic of the gospel, and this will reveal why impartiality is so problematic. So God's movement to material needs as you walk through the Bible also functions as a parable for his movement towards our deeper spiritual needs. We come to find out that all human beings, whether rich or poor, have sinful hearts, are under the curse, it is a curse, read Genesis 3.19, of mortality. Raise your hand if you're not under the curse of mortality. We're speeding towards death, and at death we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What this means for a sinful, dying person is that we are utterly spiritually bankrupt. We're in a horrible state. 
So God's movement to the poor materially becomes a parable to say God moved to, moves towards the spiritually needy. And so you see, the, the needle of the gospel, the needle of salvation, it enters the patient through the vein of human need, not through the muscle of human strength. And so when we practice partiality, we are distancing ourselves and others from the very logic of the gospel. We are saying to people, you are accepted based on your merit. The gospel is the complete opposite. You are accepted based on Jesus' merit. We are teaching people that they will then go on being evaluated among the people of God based on their impressiveness. When in fact, their place of belonging in the people of God is based on Jesus' impressiveness. Partiality inverts the gospel that's why it's such a problem. That's the first reason. Now, I think we should pay close attention to this because Washington is a city built on meritocracy. You know what meritocracy means? It means your merit determines your worth. That's why people share their resume so quickly, want to work for powerful people, want you to know what articles they've written. Now, there's nothing wrong with hard work, there's nothing wrong with education. But when it becomes an idol and moves into the church, it turns the church into an ethos of meritocracy. But the church is meant to be a democracy of grace. So we're going to have to be particularly careful about this. False church Anglican. Okay, that's the first reason. Partiality is opposed to the favor and gospel of God. The second reason James gives us, this is verses 6 and 7, is that partiality may end up praising those who blasphemy God. Verse 6, are not the rich, you feel the irony here? I mean, just think about this for a second. James sees people fawning over the rich, and then he's like, let me get this straight. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? I mean, can you see this happening in a town like this? We fawn over important people, and in the years to come, these same people turn around and drag us into courts for being Christians. Now, James is not saying it's wrong to honor people and respect people. What he's doing is he's drilling into your heart and asking you, who do you actually worship? You see, partiality is a great, it's a great x-ray machine for figuring out what you worship. What are you most impressed by? Who do you long to honor? And who do you want to see see you? You know, later in James... He says in James 4, 4, friendship with the world is en enmity with God. So who impresses your heart? Your partiality re reveals your heart. Don't give the world your heart. Honor people, respect people, but be far more impressed by someone's faith than their SAT score. That's the second thing. Partiality may praise blasphemers. Third, partiality undermines all other obedience. This is what's going on in verses 8 through 11. And I think he's bringing this up because we are tempted to treat partiality like a small sin. I mean, come on, James. We're not committing adultery or murder. Just a little bit of favoritism going on. And by the way, James, I just really connect with that guy. I have trouble talking with that other person. It's not that big of a deal. And by the way, James, we're a church. We keep like 99% of the law. I mean, our theology is airtight. And James would say, picking up at verse 9, 
If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, that doesn't really seem fair. I mean, what if you keep nine of the Ten Commandments and you break one and you're brought into a tribunal and you're accused of breaking all ten? You're like, that's not fair. That's not how justice works. This reveals one way we deeply understand the justice of God and what it means to sin. James will go on to say, the very same God who said don't murder, said don't commit adultery, said don't be partial. In other words, you're offending the same being behind the law. Think of God's law like a huge piece of glass, right? You're in front of a huge piece of glass. And if you were to say, you know what, I'm going to preserve pretty much all the glass. I'm just going to throw this rock through one part. I'm just going to break one part of the glass. How's that going to work? You can't do that. The rock's going to shatter the whole thing or at least send splinters and fissures into the whole thing so that it's ruined. You know this if you ever had this happen on your car windshield. In other words, the law is of a piece. It's one thing. We have to treat all of it with honor. Now, what is the one area James says they're breaking? Well, he says in verse 8, he calls it the royal law. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You see what he's doing here? He's connecting the issue of partiality with the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he calls this the royal law. I'm not entirely sure why, but here's my, th- my theory. He calls this the royal law because Jesus is king, and this is how Jesus summed up the ethics of the Old Testament. Here's, here's the Old Testament in two bullet points. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This, these, these are the mountain peaks. So how you love your neighbor, which is how Jesus summed up the ethics of the Old Testament, relates to whether or not you're showing partiality, James is saying. So that's the third thing. Partiality, it really does undermine all the other areas of obedience we're trying to live in. Fourth, and finally, partiality chokes the flow of mercy. Verses 12 and 13. He kind of gets to a command here. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a lot going on here, but I just want to point out this. He's he's bringing us back to the theme of judgment. This has all been about how we judge or evaluate people, but he's introducing now the theme of mercy. And I think what he's saying is this. If you are really a Christian... It means you have been judged by God in such a way that God not only upheld the perfect standard of justice, he didn't sweep anything under the rug, he not only upheld the perfect standard of justice, but he poured out his righteous judgment on Jesus in your place so you can be forgiven, so God also extended to you mercy. So yours, friend, is a heart that has been bathed and reborn by mercy. So James is saying, if you find a person who will not show any mercy ever in how they judge people, they will never give someone a break. 
They will never show a weak person or a lowly person kindness. They are incapable of mercy. What he's saying is that may be a sign that they're not a Christian. In which case, when they're judged at the end of time, it will only be the perfect righteousness of God, not the gracious mercy. But the good news is, the last phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you are a Christian, mercy triumphs over judgment. You have been forgiven. And this brings us to our conclusion and really the one thought for application. Here's the application. Here's a question to ask, ask yourself when you, when you walk into this church, when you interact in your lives. Are you a conduit through which the mercy of God flows to others and how you value them and judge them and treat them? Or are you a conduit through which the judgment of the world is passed towards others? I was a conduit for the judgment of the world when I was in high school. And it meant that I was dead wrong about how I saw people. So friends, remember who our Lord is. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Remember who our Lord is. It is his very nature to leave aside power and riches and to draw very close to the lowly. And it is to be our nature as well. And you will discover, as many in this room have, that as you go towards the lowly with mercy, you will meet Jesus there because that is where he loves to be. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would gently, that you would use the least severe means possible, Lord, to cleanse our hearts from the sin of partiality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.